Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it, it of course is Victory Lane. Today is episode 121, we got Armani Williams on the show with us, a trailblazer, motivating, inspiring individual in the NASCAR world, the first openly autistic driver who's making his National Series debut this weekend at Worldwide Technology Raceway Gateway. Really cool story, and we're going to hear about his life story on the show. Plus, we've got Indianapolis to recap, Michigan to preview, but before we do any of that, let's go ahead and throw it back in the Wayback segment with Papa Siegel, this week paying homage to a top five driver of all time. Thank you, Duve. Welcome, everyone, to episode 121. I had a tough time deciding this week who to highlight since both of my candidates are inextricably intertwined. Say that five times fast. The legendary owners of the 21 car, the Wood Brothers, are more than worthy of a segment of their own. I promise we'll find time to pay our respects to them. However, that'll have to wait for another week since I consider the most legendary driver of the 21 car to be on my Mount Rushmore of NASCAR wheelmen. No, I'm not talking about Trevor Bain or Matt Benedetto. Today, we turn our way-back lens on the Silver Fox, the great David Pearson. Pearson holds the second position on NASCAR's all-time win list with 105 victories. That not enough to convince you? Don't take my word for it. The King said of Pearson, he could beat you on a short track, he could beat you on a super speedway, he could beat you on a road course, he could beat you on a dirt track. It didn't hurt as bad to lose to Pearson as it did to some of the others because I knew how good he was. The numbers bear it out. 113 poles to go with the 105 wins, with 48 of the wins coming on super speedways, 54 on short tracks, and 23 on dirt tracks. Pearson won three cup championships in 1966, 68, and 69, and likely would have won at least several more if he had run a full schedule. For example, we previously discussed how Benny Parsons won the title in 1973, despite the fact that Pearson won 11 of the 18 races he entered that season. In 1974, Pearson finished third in the points, despite only competing in 19 of the 30 events. King Richard even went so far as to say that he believed Pearson would have equaled his 200 victories if he had run the full schedule. David Pearson won the Daytona 500. He won the Southern 500, the World 600, and the Winston 500 each three times. He won the NASCAR Triple Crown in 1976. And, as you would expect, he was named one of NASCAR's greatest 50 drivers in 1988 and inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame 
in 2011. Pearson died in November 2018 at the age of 83. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate that. The Silver Fox, one of the greatest race car drivers, not just of his time, but maybe even ever. Top five. He's probably on my Mount Rushmore of NASCAR drivers if I had to choose right now. Let's get this episode started as we always do with a good old-fashioned <laughs> Verizon 200 at the Brickyard recap. I say this is a pretty good race, unfortunately marred by the ending of it with the curbs, lack thereof, <laughs> turtles, what have you. It really was overall a solid event. The road course itself, besides the problem corner with the calamity that ensued, it was a good course. It it had braking zones, it had passing zones, it had high-speed corners, low-speed corners, off-camber, and the fact that it was at Indianapolis, yeah, it's a touchy subject because if you're going to be there, you should run the oval, say some people, but also NASCAR should be there, period, say some people. So whatever you think and whatever you say, you probably watched the race this weekend, and if you did, you were in for a treat because down the stretch, it sure was interesting. Let's fast forward to the end after the curbing. We have the Denny Hamlin Chase Briscoe scenario where Denny kind of forces Briscoe off in turn one, as you know, Briscoe admitted he should have. Briscoe cuts through the grass, merges back onto the track, lets Denny have P1. Then he's told that he's penalized. Apparently, he was not told soon enough or he didn't get the message communicated to him. He ends up dumping Denny, to, and what he says was unintentionally. Then AJ Allmendinger comes out of nowhere in third place. Puts himself in the right place at the right time to capitalize. And he comes through the wreckage to win the Verizon 200 and kiss the bricks. The first Cup Series victory for Colleg Racing ever. Second ever for AJ Allmendinger in the Cup Series. Chris Rice, Matt Colleg were going nuts. So was AJ. There was nothing quite like an AJ Allmendinger win celebration. So let's ask him, how were those last few laps down the stretch en route to your second career Cup Series win, A.J. Allmendinger? That was chaotic. You know, we honestly, we didn't really have a race-winning car on outright speed. We probably about 7th to 10th. I sped on pit road, so I just kind of carried on for, uh, for how I felt yesterday. So put us in the back there, and we were just fighting hard. I thought we'd probably maybe get in the edge of the top 10 and, and have a solid day. Um, you know, for a, a makeshift, really pit crew that we, I shouldn't say makeshift, but a crew that we don't work with all the time. They did a fantastic job, great pit stops. Um, but, yeah, once that chaos started happening, we started getting close to the front. I had a really good restart on the first one. I think we were restarting 17th with eight to go and, and was able to get to seventh through all that mess and thought, all right, you know, now we're, now we're at least in shouting distance of it. Knew a couple of the cars had older tires, and uh, that second restart, Got the third, and it's like, okay, now we got a shot at this. And, you know, the best part is when you got Matt Collick and Chris Rice getting on the radio and just going, hey, we're not here for, for friends. We're not here for points. We're here to win this race. So win it or basically bring it back on the hook, you know, that kind of frees up a race car driver to go after it. And uh, I just can't, can't believe the way it played out. I had a great restart. I thought I might take the lead off turn two, and Denny kind of leaned on me, which he should. I would have done the same thing. And I saw Chase come back on the racetrack. Well, at that point, they were just telling me that he had a penalty. So I thought, all right, you know, maybe I can kind of make a run for the last lap and a half here at Denny. And they had contact, and all of a sudden the seas parted. And then from there, it was just 
run like hell because I knew Kyle and Chase and Ryan were back there, and they were pretty good all day. So I put in as about as good of a lap and a half as I could. It was really cool to me seeing Chris Rice pump his fist, Matt Collick congratulating the dinger. It was it was heartwarming. It was one of those feel-good stories, and I got a feeling that we're going to be seeing a lot more wins from Collick Racing, maybe not next year in the Cup Series, but definitely for years and years to come. Also, the crew chief of that 16 Chevrolet, Matt Swiderski, I really want to have him on the show because I admittedly knew nothing about him, and he was on the morning drive on SiriusXM NASCAR radio this week. The dude has an insanely unique, really cool story. He took a sabbatical from racing, and what did he do? He went and worked for SpaceX, talked to Elon Musk, said that he has his own cubicle. He does not have a big old room. He just has a cubicle. It was a crazy story, so definitely want to hear more from Matt Swiderski about his career in racing. Before we move on to talk about Xfinity, we got to talk about the curbs, or lack thereof. They were bad. No two ways about it. So let's try to get some answers here. Why did it happen? How did it happen? Will it happen again? Why did NASCAR choose to keep going? Did they have any inkling of having to stop the race and call it early? Scott Miller, who joined also the morning drive this week on Channel 90, he gave some answers or at least tried to lend some clarity to the entire situation after the race at Indy. Obviously, that thing had deteriorated with that with that last big wreck quite quite substantially, and there was no way that we could justify leaving it like it was without removing it. Um, there was some debate. It obviously had to come out if we were going to continue, uh, and there was some debate about the other taking the other piece out. But as we as we worked through putting the track together for Xfinity before last year's race. Um, there was a big ask for the drivers to have something back there because that section was just way too fast. There was that grass, and going into turn seven, they'd have probably been running, what, maybe 15 or 20 miles an hour faster. So we weren't going to sign up for that. That other one had to stay, and um, that was the only way that we were going to get back to racing today. I will say, got to give a shout-out to track president Doug Bowles because I saw this dude in a suit and a tie, and he's going out where the curves are, grabs a broom, and he's sweeping some stuff away. And I'm saying, okay, that's pretty cool. Like, maybe it's a PR thing, but maybe he just wants to help out. I thought it was pretty cool. So I expect us to go back to this same racetrack with the same configuration next season, potentially at the same time period in the schedule. And honestly, I'm here for it because I enjoyed the race. In a perfect world, I would like to have a doubleheader of one day on the oval, one day on the road course, Keep the IndyCar doubleheader. I cannot stress that enough. A rising tide lifts all boats in motorsports. And having people come together and do things cohesively, that is what we're all here for. So I love the action, and I love the racetrack. Even though it's not the Oval, it's fine for me. Give a call to Austin Sindrick because he finished top 10 on Sunday after spinning twice because he was able to come through the calamity that ensued. Calamity is the drinking word of the show. So if you're drinking every time I say calamity, you're probably hammered by now. But on Saturday, he was able to kiss the bricks. And that was a big deal for him. His ties to Indiana, his ties to Team Penske. He was singing on the radio. He was over the moon. Kissing the bricks is a big deal for anybody. A bigger deal for Austin Sindrick on Saturday.
No trucks and no ARCA this weekend, but plenty of action was coming up this upcoming weekend. We'll get to it shortly in the show. But first, let's have a sponsored read on the podcast before we talk to Armani Williams. You guys already know what I'm going to tell you about. It's Rhino Classifieds. They came on the scene recently with the bang. They gave away Vaughn Gittin Jr.'s drift truck. And Rhino, as you guys know, it was created by the founder of Racing Junk because he wanted to create a more streamlined buying and selling app that allowed users to see what they wanted rather than all those ads that get in the way. So head on over to rhino.co, sign up for a free account. It's free, people. You can find whatever you want, car part, race car, classic car, modified street machine, and you can post yours. Rhino.co, classified for racers, built by racers. Let's throw it over to my chat with Armani Williams, who is making his National Series debut this weekend in the Truck Series for Rayum Brothers Racing, the first openly autistic NASCAR driver as well. His story is really cool. I encourage you guys to stick around and listen to the entirety of the interview because he told some funny stories later on about the first time he won, he actually forgot to celebrate. (laughs) So he tells the story behind that. Also how the deal with the Rayum Brothers came together, why he's deciding to go truck racing now in the first race of the playoffs, how he understands he's gonna have to stay out of the way, but also the challenges, the trials, the tribulations, but also the things that actually give him an edge having autism and being a race car driver. Really insightful conversation, and I think Armani's doing insanely cool stuff. He's a freaking mechanical engineer right now at Oakland University in Michigan, way smarter than I'll ever be. So without further ado, Here's our chat with trailblazer in the motorsports world, Armani Williams. Pleasure to be joined this week on the podcast by a trailblazer in his own right, and he is making some more history this upcoming weekend. Armani Williams, you may have heard the name, get ready to know the man, Armani. He's making his National Series debut this weekend at Gateway in the Truck Series. First openly autistic driver in NASCAR. Longtime friend of mine, man. It's been too long. I'm glad that we could finally reconnect because as we were talking before off mic, last time we saw each other was probably at this point like three years ago, but we're doing things virtually now. So it's great to see you, my man. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I'm doing really well. And I hope you you are too, Davey. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, of course. So you were telling me what you've been up to since we last chatted. You're in college now. You're doing great things. You got an internship and you've been trying to scratch and clownch together some racing stuff here throughout this whole process, right? So you've been staying really, really busy. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it's just, it takes a lot to be able to get these opportunities. And uh, me and my family, especially with the support system I have, uh, we've been working really, really, really hard. And uh, this time it's uh, finally paying off for us, you know, just the opportunity to get back in the driver's seat. And just once again, you know, like I've always done every time I'm at the racetrack, you know, given that, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, just get that valuable seat time, right. get as much experience and just learn as I possibly can in every race that I'm in, because, you know, every little bit that you can take out of a race and how you perform, you know, it can, you know, there's things that you can continue to build on and things you might want to improve on. It just helps you continue to build, to be a better race car driver. So, um, I'm just thankful that um, everything kind of came together like we wanted, you know, um, being uh, like we with uh, Reams Brothers Racing and Josh Reem, who we've been talking to for like a year. And 
interesting enough, he too has a degree in mechanical engineering. So it almost seemed like the connection was sort of a match, you know, it was a good connection for us, you know, so glad we were able to work things out with him uh, to, for me to be able to make my first NASCAR Camping World Truck Series start driving for his team. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So I know in the release, you mentioned that you had been talking to Josh and your guys' families have been conversing to try to make something like this happen for a little bit. So how did it happen? How long had you guys been talking and why is here and now and Gateway in the truck series with Rayun Brothers Racing, why is it now the right time and how did it all come together? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said before, you know, like we've been talking to Josh Stream for like uh, a year you know, like we're, we're looking to move me up in the NASCAR Camper World Truck Series and, you know, just trying to find like a selective races, uh, given that, you know, like we didn't have enough for a full season and we, we were just trying to find any ride we can have. And, you know, right. that's when we try to connect with Josh Reem and, you know, he, uh, you know, happily wanted to try and um, find a race or two where I can uh, drive for his team, you know, and so and with my dad you know he does a lot as far as the business development although like i try to be behind the scenes learning a lot as well you know we've been talking a lot of like you know what races uh, we want to get in you know and what things do we need to do to get things put together you know of course finding sponsorship it, like it's always sponsorship dependent nowadays right. you know so you know all those things we had to work diligently of and just continue to you know reach out to you know, Josh Reem, you know, just to see, like, um, just to see, like, you know, if everything's, uh, is a go, you know, and, uh, thankfully, you know, for this race at Gateway, you know, it was a go. So, uh, you know, I'm just excited that everything, uh, worked out the way they did. It's a big race to make your debut too, Armani. I mean, as you're aware, it's the first race for the truck series with their playoffs. So you're going to be, you're going to have to be conscious of situations going on around you because, I know you're realistic about this, right? You're not going to get in this truck, go out and win the race right away. It's your first start. You're going to have a lot of growing pains associated with that. And the equipment that you're in is not necessarily capable of running up front with those playoff contenders. So when you're going to be getting lapped with and be in lap traffic and these playoff guys are racing for wins and racing for championships, that's something that you behind the wheel are going to have to be conscious of and not mess up their race and their season. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you you definitely hit the nail on the head there, Davey. You know, I mean, given that, uh, you know, not only you got the 10, you know, playoff truck uh, driver contenders, but, you know, especially like everywhere in the field, basically, you got a lot of good race car drivers out there. But exactly. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's the first playoff race. The last thing we want to do is try to get into one of the 10 championship contenders because there's a lot of stake for them because they're, they're trying to finish the season with a championship. And the last thing we want to do is uh, try and ruin that. So, I mean, that's something that, you know, me and a team, I mean, we're, we're going to have to be aware of, make sure we don't try to get in their way. You know, I'm at the end of the day, we, I just want to complete all the laps from start to finish, keep mm-hmm. my truck clean. And given that we're not going to have any practice and qualifying, like in most racetracks we've had, you know, right. every lap is going to be a learning process for me of just, you know, like how to get around gateway and everything and just continue to build speed as the race progresses, you know? So, I mean, really you, you want to go into races uh, with realistic expectations and understand what you're dealing with. So, you know, that that's basically the goal. And uh, hopefully we get to finish on the lead lap if we can, you know, so that's what we want to shoot for this weekend. 
Yeah, I think that's realistic. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We will be watching for sure. So as I mentioned at the top, for people that may not know you, Armani, you are the first openly autistic driver in NASCAR. Uh, you were diagnosed with autism at two years old. You were pretty nonverbal. And you started racing at eight years old. And I know there's a lot of ground to cover there, and we're going to get there at some point. But ha- how did racing happen for you? Because on paper, you know, that's not supposed to happen. But clearly, you were drawn and was interested in fast cars, big motors, all that kind of stuff at a really early age. I know you went to the brickyard at some point, too. We'll get to all that. But from the first moment that you saw NASCAR racing and you saw stock cars, what drew you to racing in general? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely what drew me in racing in general, I guess uh, just one, uh, just how fast those cars were going, man. Like you're talking about 180, 190, 200, and I'm thinking, heck, you can't even do that on the road or the highway. That's insane <laughs> that these guys are going. But, uh, yeah. you know, that and then just the cool paint schemes that the drivers would have back in the day and that, you know, the winner, you know, gets a trophy and just how aggressive the drivers were, you know, that's kind of what really drew me in, you know? So, I mean, that was the point where, you know, I told my dad then, Hey, I, I wanted to be a professional race car driver. And, you know, I always felt that, you know, when I was born that I, it felt like I was around cars all the time, you know, like my great grandfather once owned a small body shop, and kind of passed that along to my grandfather that worked on cars to then my dad learning how to work on cars and then eventually passed it along to me when, uh, you know, I started racing in the go-karts, move up in the mini cup and just, you know, have it in my garage, just uh, learning every little bit of just how exactly cars work. So, you know, it always felt like I was just around cars all the time, you know, and eventually it trans- transferred to racing, you know, so, you know, you go from go-karts and, you know, been trying to continue up the ladder since then and continuing to move up the ladder to this day. Yeah. I know that you also enjoyed playing with some hot wheel cars when you were young that kind of sparked your interest too. I feel like every kid had that phase, right? When they're just playing with little toy cars. Yeah. Like if you like cars, those were definitely uh, <laughs> the most popular ones, yeah. whether it was hot wheel, whether it was even matchbox cars, you know, yeah. and just, you know, play them anywhere. I could play them on, whether it was on the, you know, kitchen table, the counter, the floor, anywhere, basically. It's just, that's how drawn in I was to cars, you know? And then, I mean, and then of course the racing came along and, you know, that's kind of how I, I found my love for racing. And it's something that I wanted to be a part of. What about die cast cars now? Do you collect any die cast? Do you like them? Do you have any die cast that you've driven? That must be cool if you have those. Yeah. So, um, I do have a, a, like a die one die cast car of my car like it was back when i ran in the nascar pinty series when i raced right. that race for autism car it's downstairs yeah. but like i don't have it up in my room unfortunately but um yeah. you know it, even when i was a kid i i had a uh, you know a few die cast cars like uh, one of them being um a kurt bush uh, 97 superman car mm, that i think love it. he used to run for roush racing and yep. I think I had a Jimmy Johnson one with the uh, low SpongeBob paint scheme that I think he ran in the Pepsi 400 in 2003. So, you know, that's kind of where, you know, me as a kid, that's kind of how the cars would look like back then. And yeah. I, don't know, I just 
just collect a few die casts, but mainly for me, it was this Hot Wheels, Matchbox cars, or sometimes small NASCAR action figure type cars. <laughs> yep, yep. I'm the same way, man. I love my die cast. So that's cool that you have one of your own. Is, is it that 28 car that you ran in the Pinty series? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I got, you got to send me a picture of that after. I want to see what it looks like. Um, oh, yeah. I, I also know that your dad told a story of how you guys as a family were mini golfing one day. And this is actually funny because I was mini golfing and then I went go-karting right after we mini golfed this past weekend. But you looked over to the go-kart track and you said, hey, what's going on over there? I want to try that out. And I guess as you can say, the rest is history. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, that's definitely that. Uh, that's definitely as accurate as you can get. I mean, you know, every time we went to any amusement park of some sort, if I ever saw a, a go-karting attraction somewhere, like I, I always wanted to make sure that we ride on that, and I and I didn't care how many oh, times yeah. we ride on that. I just wanted to do it more and more. And <laughs> you know, it, it was so it was unfortunate because you know, like I wasn't tall enough to be able to you know drive yet. I was still a small kid, so it was like, of course, I would ride in the passenger seat with my dad or my mom, you know. But eventually, once I got tall enough, I can be able to drive a go kart. So right. Yeah, definitely accurate. You know, any go kart track, we we better make sure we hit on that by the end of the day. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And uh, this is like kind of getting ahead of things, but I actually drove this past weekend a Kevin Harvick go kart with his paint scheme on it and everything. And I saw that back in your Bandolero days, I think it was. Did you have like a very specific carbon copy looking paint scheme on your car of Kevin Harvick's number four Jimmy John's car? Yeah, we try to make it make more of like Kevin Harvick's Jimmy John's uh, Jimmy John's uh, paint scheme. Type it was of car. perfect. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked exactly the same. And then, of yeah. course, you know, the, the freaky fast uh, along the side. I mean, I, I guess once we slapped that paint scheme up, like we had some pretty good success by it, you know. So yeah. I'm kind of glad we did that. <laughs> Is your favorite number four? Because I feel like you've ran that in a bunch of different divisions growing up. Yeah, I mean, I always felt that, um, you know, and then I don't really care like what number I drive, but like if, if there was one uh, car number that I wanted to drive, it is really, it was the four car. I mean, for whatever reason, the four just kind of stick to me. It's like, it was my favorite number. And then to even go along with, you know, kind of the cause uh, of what I'm trying to bring as far as like having racing and using autism as a platform. Right. With the reach for autism, it, like, I don't know, it just somehow was either meant to be or it just kind of fitted really well, you know. So I, I've always liked to, you know, drive the number four. But, you know, hey, other than that, you know, I mean, like, no matter what, like, I'm, I'll drive any number, like, I'll, I'm, I'm put in, you know, just as long as I can, you know, go fast and drive as hard as I can, basically. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Uh, let, let me ask this. So this weekend, are you driving the 33 or the 34? And if you're not driving the 34, did you lobby to get a four in there? Um, so actually I'm going to be driving the 33, mm. the 33 Marine brothers race. One number off from your favorite, man. <laughs> right. Although, you know, I could have tried to ask Josh Green if we could put a four, but I think, um, you know, John Hunter Nemechek already has that number, yeah. so like that wasn't gonna work. But I mean, hey, I mean, no matter. I mean, whatever number, you know, <laughs> all I care about is hopping in that car and just going as fast and driving as hard as I can, really. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, we just finished up a weekend at uh, the Brickyard at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I know that you attended the Brickyard 400 on the Oval, not the road course, back when you were 10 years old. Um, Indiana is obviously kind of geographically close to where you're at because you guys are from uh, Detroit suburb, Gross Point. I went to Michigan State. We've talked about this. We, we love our, uh, our Michigan heritage, so to speak. And we'll get to how you're an Oakland Grizzly right now because that's pretty cool as well. Um, but the story of when you went to the Brickyard when you were 10 years old, was that your first NASCAR race, the cup race that you went to? And if so, how was your experience there? I'm sure it had to be a whirlwind experience and kind of an eye-opening one. Yes. So that was actually the first time I actually got to go see a race in person. You know, I always watched racing on TV and the Brickyard 400 was the very, very first race that I got to see in person. I can remember we were sitting right in the short shoot within three and four. And it was such a hot day, too. I mean, we were trying our darndest to keep ourselves hydrated. I mean, you know, you still had people packed into the grandstands and I was cheering on my uh, favorite driver, you know, Jimmy Johnson, the seven-time champ. Although, yep. like, he ended he ended up not having a good day. But you know, uh, what what's I, what I found interesting was just how big the track was. Like from where I was sitting, it, you couldn't even see turn one and two. You know, it's it was like huge. by the time they got, yeah, huge. Like they talk about how many football fields you can fit inside that speedway. Like by the time they got to the end of the straightaway, you, you could not see them in turn one or two, nor could you see them like, you know, the beginning of the back straight away too, you know? So it was just real, real crazy and cool. Just like how big that track was. And, you know, I'll tell you what my experience that I, I could have not asked for like a better time. You know, I just enjoyed it. The, the loud noise of the cars roaring by us, you know, and just the crowd reaction when, you know, something happened on the, out on the track, you know, it was just something I haven't experienced before. And, uh, it was a fun time, you know. I'm I'm just glad I I was able to go see what the magic of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was all about. Yeah, and it is magical. That that is for sure. Did did you get a chance to like go look at the yard of bricks? I assume you didn't really get on the track, but did you at least see them even though your seats weren't really by the start finish line? Yeah, I mean, I think from where I sat, like I didn't get like really close to Brickyard 400, at least stand on it or be next to it, unfortunately. Right. Although like looking back on it, I wish I did. But I mean, hey, you'll get no there matter. one day. Yeah, I mean, eventually, like one of these days, uh, hopefully I get to race on that, um, you know, that prestigious track, you know, where I'll, I'll get a closer look at it this time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that day I could see the yard of bricks a little bit. I mean, it just it's just amazing just you know, what kind of a tradition, you know, like the reason why those that uh, start finish line of the bricks is there, you know, it's just there's just so much history behind it. Yeah. And it's also topical because this weekend, the Cup and Xfinity Series are going to Michigan, which I guess technically is your home track, right? So have you gone to Michigan before after you went to Indy for your first time? Yeah, so I mean, I think one before Indy, in which like, you know, my dad once picked me up from school and he was going to give me a surprise. And, you know, we were driving, driving, driving. And I, I have no idea where we're going. You know, like I see we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, yep. well, where are you taking me? <laughs> like, And next thing you know, here we are. We're going to MIS to go see a practice session. So that's awesome. That was the first time I went to MIS. And then I think. After the Brickyard 400 a year later, I went to go see the race there for, I think it was the June race, because they would always have the race in June and August, but I went to right. the June race. And then um, 
few years later, did the Rusty Wallace experience there. And unfortunately, I still couldn't be able to drive in a car, you know, because I was underage, you know, yeah. 14 at the time. And then to be able to make my second ARCA start there at MIS and be able to get a top 10 out of it. Finally, I get to drive and race on it. And uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, it, there's something about racing at your home track that just, you know, no matter what races you're going to be in, you know, racing at a home track of yours is, you know, there's just another special feeling to it that you just want to do so, so well on it, you know? And so, you know, I mean, I know like it, it didn't end up with a win, but to, in my second arc, I started to get a top 10 there at my home right. track. It was, it was an awesome day, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, given the equipment that you were in that day and the fact that it was your home track, I'm sure you had a ton of friends, ton of family there. That probably one, was one of the highlights of your racing career, racing at your home track and not just racing there, but doing well. You had a career day. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I wish I could have brought my entire family uh, with me, but given last year when we had to deal with COVID, it was just right. unfortunate. And what's so unfortunate, we didn't even have uh, fans that day too. So, yeah, you know, that right. kind of, you know, it just, you know, with the fans, you just have that sort of energy that you just want to be able to put on a show for them. And, you know, it just was different last year, but at the end of the day, you know, I mean, I got, heck, I got to race with, you know, a few drivers that uh, I know of and, and come away with a top 10, which is what we wanted to come away with. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those races I'm not going to forget. Yeah. So we've talked about, you started racing when you were eight years old, we got go-karts, bandoleros with your freaky fast bandolero. And then you moved up to more of a stock car focused route. And now obviously you've raced in the Pinty series, you race in the Arca truck series, K and N now you're making your truck debut. So can you take me through the progression from when you started in go-karts to them progressing up to more of a stock car focused route, because I know that that was obviously where you wanted to go and where you are now, which is in stock cars, but you got to start somewhere and hit a couple ladders, ladder rungs on the way up. Yeah, definitely. And it was a long process and it's been quite a heck of a journey, you know, given that like, you know, I go from eight years old to where I am now, just all the hard work that, you know, was needed to get me where I have to be today. And, you know, as well as the support from not only my family, but, you know, friends, you know, support from the fans and, you know, even uh, some of the business people that, you know, trying to connect that believe uh, in what I'm trying to accomplish, you know, that, you know, you just, you, you can never like move up through the sport, you know, without the support. And, you know, I've been thankful to have a lot of support and especially mentors doing this whole process, especially when I was in racing, you know, that kind of helped me teach me like little techniques and little tricks, you know, to kind of help me be, be a more better race car driver, you know? So, I mean, it, it's definitely been a lot of hard work, you know, and I'm just thankful to be where I'm at, you know, and I want to someday be a champion of one of NASCAR's top series. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's the NASCAR capable truck series, the NASCAR Xfinity series, or heck, even in the NASCAR cup series, if we dream get big baby. Top, yeah. Yeah. That's always the dream. I, I call it more the ultimate dream really is the very top, but no matter what, you know, that's what I, I'm working towards now is just now that I finally made it to the top three, just to continue to progress to hopefully someday be a champion. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I love that. You got to dream big. You got you got to where you are now because you've dreamt big and you've accomplished those goals. So why stop now? I, I completely agree with you. And I also saw somewhere, man, 
that you're put in a class to learn how to ride a bike. This is back back in the day, but it kind of relates to just your rapid progression in racing and in general. And you mastered that class, which I think was supposed to take like two weeks. You did it in a day. So you obviously were a quick learner, a quick study, and you learn how to pick things up with wheels pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. And I do remember uh, those bike lessons there, you know, I mean, having to learn how to, you know, ride a bike on two wheels rather than, you know, have training wheels on me. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just I, I take uh, take from what I experienced there, you know, it's just, you know, understand what's really my strength, you know, I mean, it's just having that focus and concentration to, you know, like, you know, do the little things, you know, just be able to pay attention to things that people are telling you and, and, and put it to good use, you know, because, you know, a lot of things can happen. And at the end of the day, they just want to make sure that you know what you're doing and that you don't get hurt, really, you know, so I felt like, you know, as I progress along the way, I've done a good job of that, like keeping aware of myself as well, as well as other people as well, you know, yeah. and no matter what I'm going through in life, you know, so definitely that bike lesson is, um, that's one of them right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your racing career in general and how it relates to your diagnosis of autism. When did you realize that what you were going to do in your life was different than quote unquote normal people? Because normal people don't drive race cars for a living and try to make that their career. So when did you realize in your racing progression and career, you know, like when you started in go-karts and then you started moving up, was there a moment where you said to yourself or your dad and yourself had a conversation saying like, okay, I think I want to do this. Let's try to pursue this more seriously. Let's try to do this right. Yeah. I mean, I think really when it hit me, you know, like, of course, like I kind of knew what I wanted to do right off the bat and, you know, dad wanted to be on board, you know, like he could have said no, given like the type of sport racing is, you know, right. like, but you know, he knew that is something that I was passionate about. It's something that I love. So he wanted to be a part of it. I mean, my family never grew up in a racing background and I sort of kind of helped invite them to know everything about racing, you know, and just be a part of it. But I mean, I think it was at the point right around when I was 14, 15 years old, you know, cause there, there's okay. more things to do than just driving a car, given that like, I've been, I, I have autism, you know, and I feel like what, what I've been, what I've been able to do is just something nobody would have expected. And so we wanted to kind of use my racing platform to kind of help create awareness, just find something to help give back to the autism community for people that like me that have challenges with autism with that are individuals, kids and families, you know, and just kind of help spread the word of, you know, Hey, you know, no matter what, if you have, no matter what, if you have autism, if, if you have a dream of something that you want to do in life, kind of how I found my dream of racing, go for it, chase the dream, you know, and just be able to put in the hard work, the passion commitment that it takes to help you get to where you want to be, you know, and I, I try to share that message all around the country, you know, because with autism, there's just a lot of uncertainty. You know, there's this this perception that because you have autism that you're limited to your abilities. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case at all. Like, I, I feel like no matter what, like, you know, you can make it in life as long as you're willing to put in the work that you continue to believe in yourself, 
stay encouraged no matter what gets in your way. You know, don't let autism, you know, kind of keep you down for or what you can be able to accomplish, you know. So it was right around that point when we wanted to try and like build on the cause with my racing as well as bring awareness, hope and belief in better life outcomes for people in the autism community. That was the point where I kind of felt like, you know, yeah, this is something normal in racing. This is something that we need to continue to build on because uh, right now, like th this is a huge deal. And I feel like we can do a lot more in helping to give back and to give individuals, families and kids with autism a reason, you know, to, you know, keep pushing forward and that it's not the end of the world just because you have autism. That's awesome, man. Like the work that you, your parents, your partners, sponsors, team, at what ev everything comes together and kind of relates back to what you just mentioned. And it also relates back to your motto, which I remember you told me back in 2018 when I wrote a story on you. Maybe it was 2019. I don't remember. But it's okay. tell me I can't so, so I can show you that I can. And I still think about that to this day because on a personal level, like I have two twin cousins, they live down in Miami and they are both on the autism spectrum. One is entirely nonverbal and one is, you know, really competent. Like he's in the public school system. He does like great stuff. He's an extremely smart, funny kid. And I always think of what you told me whenever I'm hanging out with them or whenever I see them accomplishing things, they both just graduated high school. Like it's awesome. So what you were just mentioning in terms of, trying to bring a light to people on the autism spectrum, but also to educate people that may not know too much about the disorder that like, look, just because I have this doesn't mean that I can't do X, Y, or Z. And that's where your motto of tell me I can't so I can show you that I can. That's where that kind of comes to life. Yeah, definitely. You know, and uh, I'm glad that your siblings are doing uh, good things as well, you know, and I mean, yeah, just at the end of the day, we just want to kind of, you know, help, uh, like give people an understanding of what exactly autism is and just understand what we have to deal with and just, you know, be able to support them as much as they can, you know, with whatever challenges they have, you know, cause at the end of the day, they just need that love support and just that understanding that, that, you know, they can be willing to continue to push forward and do the things they want to do and yeah. find out what kind of person they want to be really, you know? and just not let autism be the uh, be an effect on like why you should do it. So yeah, I mean, definitely, it's just something that, you know, we want to, you know, continue to spread that message to, you know, autism communities in this country, really, to just, you know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and life is always full of challenges and autism is no different. But it's a matter of how you overcome that challenge, how you face that kind of adversity. That, that will help you get to where you want to be. I see that you do some motivational speaking, and I can tell why. Because you're damn good at it, Armani. I will say. Like, you're good at this. <laughs> Thank you. You know, um, I once took a speech class in my uh, high school. Like, I think in one of my classes, we had an English class that was called speech. And, you know, I was kind of thinking, hmm. You know, given that I'm a race car driver and I'm probably going to be doing a lot of these interviews or public speaking in the future, it's probably best if I like get into this class so that that way I, I can know how to one, how to speak in front of someone one by one like we're doing now, yeah. but also like in a fence where you have 50, 100, 200, however many people, you know, just how to speak. You got to do that in racing too. You know? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said before, there's more things to uh, more things in racing than just getting behind a wheel of the race car, you know, and I had to realize that and take that initiative to just, you know, become a good uh, public speaker, per se, you know, at least uh, be good in front of the camera or wh whatever I'm doing off the racetrack. <laughs> Well, you do a really great job of it, and I appreciate you giving me so much time today, too, and kind of telling your story. And part of your story is the challenges that come with being autistic. And I know that you said before some of the bigger challenges, at least growing up, were the social aspect and the communication aspect, two things of which are of critical importance in the racing world, in NASCAR specifically, when it comes to managing relationships with teams, sponsors, drivers, etc. So how have you kind of navigated that as you've grown older, you're now mature, you're in college, you're killing it, but you still are kind of dealing with these residual challenges associated with autism. Is that was that something that was more prevalent when you were younger and you've kind of learned to how to how to deal with that and cope with that or does that kind of still affect you today? No, I mean like I think at least when I was a kid I never really talk a lot. I was always like that kind of shy guy. Like you, you play those Mario games. That's kind of how I was really just didn't really talk <laughs> didn't really socialize didn't really do a lot of things. And, you know, I mean, with the help of my family, you know, just uh, helping me, you know, learn how to socialize with people. And, and it's really helped me along the way. Like the progress has kind of helped me be a little more better person. Like I've, mm -hmm. I've been able to kind of open myself more, be able to open what kind of personality I am. And, you know, as far as like building relationships, I, I always uh, had to realize that, you know, let's, let's not, let's let it not be about me. Let it be more about, you know, the person that I'm trying to connect with, learn about like his background, his story, the things that he likes, things, things he doesn't like, you know, and finding ways to where, you know, you can connect and be able to hang out. And I think it's kind of helped me along the way, especially by the time I think I got through middle school and then high school and then eventually college, it, it, it's become a little easier to me. I mean, for, I, I may still have the effects, but it's not as bad as it was before, you know, I like you. I definitely been continuing to improve every day with, you know, just learning how to have a conversation with one. Eye contact is a big one that I had to learn as well. And I felt I've gotten better at that um, over time, be able to overcome that. And, yeah. you know, just, yeah, I mean, in life, you know, you, you always want to I mean, I, and I've always, and I've said this before too, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, as much as you want to make as many friends and connections you possibly can, I've always said, especially to people in the autism community that, you know, sometimes you just don't need a hundred friends. You just need that one good friend that, you know, that you can be able to connect with, that you have a lot of similarities to, and just kind of build as it goes along. And then maybe to continue to add it more, but, you know, it's like, you don't have to meet most popular kid in the world just find people right. that, that you care about and that they care about you back you know and so that's what i've always been focused on i want to say like every single answer that you have is very profound to me just because it's like you have an you have an incredible perspective on life but also on relationships and in racing and stuff and it makes me upset that people don't know more about you because i've known you for a handful of years now and people may be hearing about you for the first time this weekend so that this is why i'm glad that that we're able to do this because I think your perspective is going to help a lot of people and it's going to bring a light to something that a lot of people 
may not have seen. I also want to ask one more question about the sensory issues that you had to overcome when you were younger growing up, because that's really important, obviously, when you're a race car driver. So can you explain the issues that you are dealing with and that are associated with autism and how they kind of relate to what you do behind the wheel of a race car? Yeah, I mean, I think this sensory issue, you know, I mean, from as a kid, like I, I didn't feel like I, I always had a good understanding of where my surrounding was, you know, didn't understand certain situations of what's going on, you know, I mean, not like I want to kind of, you know, stare at it, but like, you know, just being able to understand certain situations and what's going on and whether, you know, I needed to hop, like help out or, you know, maybe like there's a part where like maybe I need to back out a little bit. And so, I mean, I think uh, over time I've tried to get better, more of the sensory issues, just kind of understand my surroundings, understand certain situations of what's going on. And I think even through the racing, it's kind of helped me a lot because, you know, I kind of understand what my responsibilities are, you know, which is to go fast, drive as hard as you can. And then even the communication part and just having the, having the mindset of being able to understand everything that my car is doing so that I can relate it to my crew kind of helps the situation as far as, you know, me and the team being on the same page, you know, so that way we can figure out how to fix it. So, I mean, at least back then, I didn't really have a good understanding about it, but I mean, I think kind of like anything, you continue to grow up, you know, things, you kind of change things that you did as a kid, you know, and I think the century issue and being able to understand situations, you know, and and knowing what, when are good times to, you know, maybe do something and when not to do something, you know, so it's just, uh, that's something I've, been continuing to get better at and I feel like you know right now I've overcome it and it's not been too severe for me there's also something to autism that actually helps you behind the wheel which I found interesting which is kind of this hyper focus that you're able to have when you're behind the wheel which is really good for a race car driver because when you got your spotter talking to you your crew chief talking to you things going on around the racetrack you're trying not to make other people mad you're trying to manage your tires do all these different things somehow you're able to compartmentalize all of that and focus on the task at hand i would say probably better than a lot of people and you've spoken about that and how autism actually helps you in that respect it's interesting yeah definitely and i and i think a lot of drivers have that uh, focus too. I mean, it's just, for me, it, it's just, I feel like I have a different kind of focus. I mean, with people with autism, uh, we like to always focus on one thing, whatever we like or whatever interests us. That's the only thing we like to focus on. We don't like to focus on too many things at once, just one thing, one thing only, and just focus on that. And I think, for me, it, it's kind of it's it's kind of like that with racing. Every time I have to get in the car, you know, once I fire up that engine, you know, everything that I'm thinking inside my head or whatever my thoughts are shut are, are shut up. You know, like for me, it, it's about just going on the track. You know, you got a job to do. You know, go on and get the job done. Right. You know? And so every time I'm in the car, that's always my focus: is go out there, do what you need to do, and at the end of the day, you know, you'll know whether you know, you did your part or whatnot, you know, so it's that kind of focus uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, I go into every single race I'm in. So let's get back to racing a little bit here. I know I mentioned the ARCA truck series. You were a part of that before it kind of closed its doors. And then you moved up north 
to Canada A to the NASCAR Pinty Series. How did you get that opportunity? Because it seems like a really, really unique one. And the series itself, you can attest to, Armani, it's super badass. Talent is off the charts. Tracks are awesome. Cars are awesome. And you were a part of it for a long time, and you did pretty well. Yeah, definitely. I, like, ran a selective racist there, and it all kind of started, you know, back when um, I was invited to this program that NASCAR has, the NASCAR Driver Diversity Program. That's right. I was fortunate enough to be invited twice, but that one year, um, you know, I mean, I felt like did really well with everything they tested us on as far as, like, you know, like, physical, like, getting in a race car, talking in the media, and, uh, you know, fortunately, I wasn't able to drive for Max Siegel's team, but, like, NASCAR kind of saw what kind of potential that I had, and it was that kind of recognition that, you know, for them to help me move up to NASCAR, but racing a different uh, NASCAR series. And, you know, it, it always seems fun when you can like kind of race all over the world just to see what it's like and racing up in Canada, boy, was that quite an experience. And yeah. they have some awesome fans. I mean, you know, like people talk about how there's a lot of nice people in Canada. And, you know, so for me being an American, you know, that it just felt welcome, you know, and the drivers you talk about, DJ Kennington, you know, he's a pretty good driver up there. I mean, you got Alex Tagliani, too, former pole center of the Indianapolis 500, you know. So you got a, a lot of really good race cars. It's a very competitive field and some great racing up there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it really started to help me to figure out, one, how can I keep up with these actual pros in a different level, as well as how, how can I – get as faster than them, you know, and being able to figure out ways to get around them, you know, I mean, just in a professional, professional level, you know, you you always find new tricks and new techniques that you may have not seen before. And it's all a matter of how you can adapt to it and, you know, to where you can be on the same level as them. And so it was quite an experience racing up in NASCAR Canada. And I, and I really enjoyed it. Well, you adapted, you adapted well, much to the thanks and the help of the guy you mentioned, DJ Kennington. And he's a legend in Canada. He's raced in the Cup Series. He's raced in America for a while as well. But he's known for his Canadian racing heritage. How did you get hooked up with him? And how has his mentorship of you behind the wheel helped you into kind of the man and the race car driver who you are today? Because as we mentioned, like he's a big deal. And for him to kind of take you under his wing probably meant a lot to you. Yeah, it definitely meant a lot to me. And, you know, like, at least when I got up to Canada, of course, we were trying to look for a team I could run for, for selective races. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we decided to join, uh, with, uh, CBRT motorsports, but, you know, it was with the technical alliance of DJ Canton, which, which is kind of how that mentorship kind of came about. And, you know, every race, you know, and me, me and, uh, DJ Canton, you know, we've always had a good connection with each other and, you know, he was able to kind of teach me the ropes kind of yeah, give me some understanding of just how to become a better race car driver. You know, I mean, he, he was just always a guy that whenever I needed like help or a little tip from him, he was always there to kind of help point me in the right direction. So, I mean, I think with a guy like DJ Kennington, you know, when, when you can get a driver uh, as caliber as a DJ Kennington, you know, kind of helping you and being there for you whenever, you know, you, you have any questions or some help, you know, that like that kind of, mentorship really helped me along the way 
besides DJ, your dad's been a huge influence in you and your career as well. Anybody else that has been influential in terms of helping you get to where you are, helping you learn the ropes of racing, anybody else besides DJ and your dad that comes to mind? Well, I mean, I would say really just the support of my family and then the support of the autism community, you know, like the kind of support that just gives me the drive and determination to want to give it my absolute best on the track so that they can as well. Um, I mean, I will say, I think uh, there was um, one in particular, I'm trying to remember who it was, because I've had a lot of veteran race car drivers that uh, oh, yeah. have helped Thomas. me along the way, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, not, it was not DJ Kenton, but it was also like, you know, Joey McComb as well, like, uh, even though like he had his own team, he, he too was a driver himself, and he kind of mm-hmm. helped teach me a little bit of the ropes as well, and he was pretty helpful, and you know, kind of helping me along the way, you know, just every track we went to, how to get around them, how to be fast, things of that nature. And uh, yeah, I mean, just those kind of mentors and, you know, just the support I have is kind of what, you know, has helped me along the way to be a better race car driver and to help help me give them my absolute best. You do a lot of interviews like this, Armani. I know that uh, you and I, we've had a couple conversations before I did a piece on you for NASCAR Home Tracks. But, I mean, I was doing research for this interview because it's been a while, and I saw you've been on NASCAR on Fox with Race Hub. Um, you've done some local news stuff in the Michigan area around Detroit and Gross Point. Um, there's been countless articles done about you. One thing that I saw, which was probably like five or so years ago, you did a sit-down in-person interview with Mitch Album in Detroit. And for anybody that doesn't know, Mitch is a big deal. And I was like, damn, Armani talked to Mitch Album. That's crazy. So I guess my question is, are you used to being in the spotlight, so to speak? Because it seems like even though you may not be racing every single week, you're making a way bigger impact off track in terms of what your messaging is with the autism community and your motivational speaking than anything you're doing on track, which in a way is part of the goal with this whole entire racing journey. Are you used to being in the spotlight and kind of just doing stuff like this a lot? Yeah, it sure seems like it. You know, like at, at any interview or parents I have kind of mainly uh, has that everything to do with, you know, at least because people like to talk about, like to ask me about like, you know, racing, how I got into it. But it's more of like the things I'm doing off the track, the fact that I have autism and given to where I am at this point, moving up through the rain set through NASCAR that I don't think anybody would imagine like a a person with a disability that is like moving up through the ranks and showing everybody that, you know, Hey, there's so many possibilities out there. I I think that's what really attracted a lot of people, you know, that's what made people want me, wanted to ask me about, you know, it's just with autism, how I've been able to overcome it and how I've been able to make my dream possible, you know, cause I mean, that, that was kind of more of a big deal, you know, I mean, cause with autism, like I said before, there's just a lot of uncertainties, you know, you, you know, with autism, you just have no idea where life will take you. You just got to be able to find it, you know, and I've been able to find it uh, with racing, you know, which is my passion and being able to work hard towards it. And people saw, saw it as something incredible, you know, something inspiring that, you know, they kind of wanted to learn more. So I, I would say, yes, I'm, I'm kind of, more used to, you know, being in the spotlight, you know, mainly for those reasons. 
the crazy thing about this entire journey and this entire conversation, Armani, is, you know, you're thinking, all right, he's doing a lot of stuff. He's a motivational speaker. I left off philanthropist, by the way, from your official title. Uh, he's a race car driver trying to make a name for himself. All the while, you mentioned that you're interning somewhere. You're also a college student, full-time, mechanical engineering major at Oakland University in Michigan. First of all, that's not an easy major, dude. Um, did you pick that one because it was one that was kind of racing focused and centric on like, you know, things that are central, things that are central to being in racing. Is that why you picked it? Yeah, definitely. You know, it was just, I could have picked any other major degree, but like I, given that my passion was racing, I just felt that mechanical engineering was just the closest thing to racing as it, yeah. you, you could possibly get. I mean, Every day that goes with cars and the way everything's being built today, it has something to do with mechanics, you know, with like everything that goes into engines, chassis, transmission, fuel tanks, you know, everything. gears, you, you name it, you know? So it's like, that's why I wanted to get in that field. And, you know, of course I didn't realize there was more into the mechanical engineering because there's different types of engineering everywhere you go, you know, yeah. like it could be, you know, like a, refrigerator or you know a light uh, or <laughs> many many things but you know just kind of putting that mechanical engineering degree to good use i just wanted to kind of learn more about you know just how cars are put together you know how you tune them up how you fix them whenever something goes wrong because i mean i always feel like with a with a race car driver and i don't know if you see this a lot but it's just like you know I think if you're going to be a race car driver, you got to learn more about the car and what you're dealing yeah. with. I mean, 3,400 pound race cars, you better have some idea what things work and, you know, and I'll go a long way because it'll, it'll kind of help you do every race you go. If something were to go wrong with your car, you know, exactly what's wrong with the car. You know, you know, you just, it's important to kind of have that knowledge in your head, you know, and be a little hands-on with cars. Just, you know, just get a hand, get a hand on, you know, helping your team be able to put together a car they're trying to put together, you know, because you can gain a, not, a lot of knowledge on it, you know, just so, you know, you're not having to focus on driving as fast as you can and mm -hmm. hard as you can. And yet something goes wrong. You don't know what's going on with the race car, but just, you know, yeah, just being a little more deeper in that, you know, will will come a long way. I'm sure you're aware, but a lot of NASCAR drivers don't go to college and a lot of NASCAR drivers do not have college degrees. And on this podcast last week, actually, I was talking to Joe Graff Jr. Who's in the Xfinity series and he goes to NYU right now. He took a class at Harvard and he said that getting a college degree and going to school is really important to him while he's racing full time. So was it ever a thought process or a decision for you to forego college was that something that you really wanted to do? You've always wanted to do? Was it something that your parents encouraged? Like, what was the thought process there? Because a lot of people choose to just skip higher education and go pursue racing full time. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very easy decision for me and my entire family. You know, like, no matter what happened, uh, I wanted to go to college, you know, just get an education, get a degree, you know, because I, I always feel that you can always have a passion for something, be committed to something you like, love, excuse me. And, you know, you want to do it for as long as you possibly can, but, you know, sometimes you got to think of the possibility that, you know, maybe it may not happen. I mean, you know, you see a lot of drivers, not every one of them 
gets to race for 20, 30 plus years, you know, doing what they love, you know, sometimes their career ends short for whatever reason, you know, and you got to find another job. And so I feel like if you can get that kind of education degree, you know, you'll, you have the ability to find many other opportunities of the things you can do in life, you know? So for me, I, I've always had that thought on the back of my head, you know, to just have a plan A, but also have a plan B, you know? Mm -hmm. So just, be able to continue racing, but get my education, complete my education, just in case anything later on in life um, happens, you know, yeah. that, you know, I got a, a backup plan that I'm willing to take advantage smart. of and, you know, continue on in life. It's definitely smart. It's definitely smart. And something else that's really central to kind of your story in racing is race. No pun intended. Uh, you're one of the only black drivers in the national series, you got Bubba, obviously, Jesse Yabuji. And now I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to be the third one to be in the National Series at least this year. Um, I'm curious if that impacts the way that you are viewed at all in the sport, in the sense of Bubba is viewed differently. Jesse Yabuji is viewed differently. They all have different stories, but the common denominator is that you guys are all race car drivers and you all are racers at heart. But your story just is so unique from the autism perspective and then you add on to the fact that NASCAR being not a historically black sport by any means, and you're a black race car driver as well. So that's another angle to your story that makes you unique. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and it's, I'm glad to kind of be up there with the other two in the NASCAR top uh, national levels. You know, uh, I certainly uh, would, I certainly hope that we get more of that in the future. And I know Absolutely. NASCAR has tried really hard to kind of create a more diverse and inclusive environment where you know, no matter what anybody looks like, they can be part of the sport as well. You know, NASCAR was once like a, you know, regional Southern type of sport, you know, mm -hmm. no kind of inclusiveness, no diverse, uh, diverse background, any sort. Everything was like down in the South. I once uh, heard of a name, uh, Wendell Scott, uh, who, you know, grew up in those times and was the first um, African-American driver to win a NASCAR race. So, you know, I look at that and I feel like, you know, heck, he was able to do what those guys were doing that nobody thought was possible. So, you know, why can't I? Why can't Jesse Arucci? Why can't uh, Bubba Wallace? You know, right. I mean, we can all be included in sport and become drivers and be able to accomplish a lot of things, if, you know, and given the opportunity, you know, so, I mean, like, like you said before, I mean, we, we three may have like different stories, different backgrounds, but I mean, I think mainly uh, people, people might view me as like an African-American driver, but mainly they kind of view me as, you know, a driver who has a disability, you know, that's a driver that, you know, they don't normally get a lot A guy who has a disability, who's able to move up to the ranks and now he's in the national NASCAR's top national level. You know, I mean, I feel like that that's kind of how I how I feel like I'm few more ass, you know, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm just uh, glad to I'm just fortunate to be in this position. And I, I just hope, you know, later down the road that, you know, we get more African-American drivers in our sport. <laughs> Last serious question. Then I got a funny one that we can end on. Okay. Um, it's kind of a cliche one, too. I mean. Are you okay with the fact that you're always going to be labeled as the autistic driver? Because regardless of how many championships you win, how many races you win, what you do outside of the sport, that label is probably always going to be always attached to you, whether right or wrong. And part of the reason why I wanted to have you on too is because 
there's a lot of people in the sport, fans, drivers, media alike, that probably don't know too much about autism in general. They they may see you and say, wait, how is he how is he able to drive a race car? I didn't know that was possible. And th- that's why I want to try to help educate people. So are you okay with the fact that that may be how you're labeled for better or for worse by a lot of people for no matter what you do on or off track? Are you okay with that? I mean, I, I believe, you know, being viewed as an autistic driver, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely something quite special, inspiring, you know, I mean, it's something to, you know, um, you know, not feel bad about. I mean, it's, it's definitely something you got to take that's quite an accomplishment, but, you know, um, right now at this uh, point and what I want to do long-term, you know, I kind of want to be viewed more as an autistic driver. You know, like I said, I want to someday become a champion. I want to be viewed as a, you know, a driver uh, who, you know, not only was autistic, but like how he was able to overcome and battle through so much, so much adversity that he was able to make it on the big stage and not being able to show people that, Hey, you know, like this guy found a way uh, to be successful. Like uh, he found a way to accomplish a lot of things, not only in life, but in racing that, you know, think nobody believed was possible, you know? And so that's kind of how I want to be viewed really, you know, not just an autistic driver, but just so much more of like, you know, how autism came about combined it with racing and just what exactly the impact and the accomplishments and the things that I've been able to, achieve you know as i'm continuing on this uh, racing career that i'm at (laughs) it's really it's profound analysis i i I don't have anything else to add so let's let's end with a fun question i read a story of a time that you were in elkhart lake indiana i think it was you won your first race and you forgot to celebrate i need i need the story here (laughs) okay so um i think uh so like it was at a track at new paris speedway and uh i think we started like six and we eventually got our way to the front and led uh the rest of the way to take the checkered flag and normally like when we someone wins the race they're supposed to park on the front stretch to where the uh fans are in the grandstands right. and uh right apparently like once i made like a victory lap around and uh, went down pit road uh, thinking okay i'll just get off the track put the car in the trailer and next thing you know you got people coming up saying hey you need to get back on the front stretch uh, victory lanes that way i'm like oh crap i need to go back over there <laughs> and you know felt so bad at the time because like you know once the race is over fans are leaving and trying to head home and i'm like man i can't even celebrate with the fans now but yeah. uh, eventually some fans said they waited for me to get on the front stretch so i mean it was just you know first win didn't know what to do at the end but you know eventually i found my way to victory lane and being able to celebrate so that was kind of a little uh oopsie like you know so uh, <laughs> you know yeah uh, Hopefully uh, that moment won't happen again. <laughs> no, I'm sure moving forward, though, you probably, whenever you won and whenever you win in the future, you're never going to forget to figure out where victory lane is after you finish because you got to celebrate. Exactly. As soon as I win a race and celebrate next day, I'm going to need to ask somebody, uh, how do I get back to victory lane? You know, that, that'll be the last thing <laughs> to figure out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, man, we'll be watching this weekend. We cannot wait to see you again. You said your expectations are just to finish every lap and get as much experience as you can, right? That's the goal. Exactly. And stay away from the playoff contenders, you know, not try to get into them. 
good. That's the last thing we want to do because right now they got a championship to fight for. And if we were, we were to be the ones that, you know, we'd be the reasons why they didn't win a championship, that'd be a bad thing. So, you know, that's, that's the one thing that we want to do is not get into any of the 10 championship contenders and keep our truck clean and we'll, we'll have a good day. <laughs> I lied. Last, last question. Any more potential races in the future with whether it's Josh, another truck team, Xfinity, anything like that? Do you have any concrete plans or something in the works for the rest of 2021 or looking ahead to next year? Well, yeah, I definitely want to probably be able to get a couple more races out of this year and then um, hopefully long-term next year or beyond, you know, that I'll be able to race full-time in the Camper World Truck Series and then, uh, you know, continue to move up through Xfinity and Cup however far it can take us, you know. So that's something that I'm planning right now. Awesome, man. I cannot thank you enough for your time, your perspective, your honesty, and honest, like you're really motivational and inspirational. And I mean that because seeing family members that have autism and how they deal with it and how they persevere, it's awesome to see you doing the same thing to the nth degree. Uh, you're way smarter than I'll ever be being a mechanical engineer at Oakland, man. You're a race car driver, philanthropist, motivational speaker, um, and you're an all around great dude. So I'm really happy for you. I appreciate your time here this week. And um, best of luck this weekend. I hope that we'll be seeing a lot more of you. And I hope that a lot of people are enjoyed to hear your story, man. I, I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Davey. And uh, once again, I appreciate you having me on. And it's been a fun time. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Armani, guys. He's a unique guy. Not many people that have autism. Not many people that have autism. Not many people that have autism go and say, hey, I want to go drive race cars. But Armani was one of those guys, and he's doing a really good job of it. And I think I speak on behalf of the entire NASCAR community and in the entire autism community as well when I say it's awesome to see what you're doing, Armani. Appreciate your time on the show, and go kill it on Friday at Gateway. If you're listening to this right now and it's after Gateway, see how Armani did. Hopefully he did well for himself. Hopefully this doesn't age poorly, but I got a feeling this is not the last we'll be seeing out of Armani. So... Thank you, brother. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your perspective. Appreciate your story. Let's briefly talk about Michigan International Speedway this week. The hills are alive in Michigan. The Irish Hills, two-mile Brooklyn, Michigan oval. It's interesting because I always go back to what David Smith and Alan Kavana talk about on Positive Regression, the podcast. If you're not listening, you should. Michigan and Auto Club are two unique racetracks, and they didn't even go to Auto Club this year. But Michigan's a two-mile D-shaped oval. There's no racetrack like it in the playoffs. This is the only time they're racing on a track type like this this season. So why would teams put forth effort, resources, testing, uh, wind tunnel time towards a track like Michigan when it's not going to be in the playoffs? There's not any other racetrack like it on the schedule. It seems kind of just like a one-off, like maybe a waste of time in terms of resources and engineering. That means that if you're Penske's, Gibbs, Hendricks, Stuart Haas, etc., if they're not putting a ton of effort into this racetrack, that gives the opportunity for Roush, JTG, RCR, Ganassi, other teams like that to potentially exploit a weakness or a chink in the armor, so to speak, for these bigger teams that maybe are not prepping for Michigan as, as well as they should. 
So I want to keep that on your guys' radar. So if you're seeing Chris Buescher or Austin Dillon or Ricky Stenhouse Jr. or somebody like that running up front, don't say I didn't tell you so because I'm telling you so. But with that being said, probably just going to be a Kyle Larson stinker <laughs> once again. I mean, this is actually Kyle Larson's statistically best racetrack in the Cup Series. Because remember his first win? Michigan. Three wins in his career at Michigan International Speedway. And he hasn't raced there since 2019. So, you know, he's been scratching and clawing and itching to get back to Michigan. Cup, Xfinity, ARCA, they're all in action. Two races to go in the regular season for the Cup Series. But Fords have won the last six races at this racetrack. And it's important for them because it's right in their backyard. Same thing with Chevrolet. The manufacturers are putting a lot of emphasis on this race, as they always do, especially now that there's only one of them instead of two this year. So Toyota just wants to come in and snatch it away from Chevy and Ford. So that's a storyline to watch. Another big storyline to watch is Kevin Harvick. He swept the races at Michigan last year, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it right now, and I don't think this is a hot take by any means. I don't think he's going to win this year because Stuart Haas is not up to snuff compared to where they were last year. Neither is Kevin Harvick. Now, it would be good if he did win because it would lock him into the playoffs. It's a, it's a strange scenario, and I don't think it's going to happen, but if we get a winner, a new winner in 2021 at Michigan and Daytona that's not named Kevin Harvick, he's out of the playoffs after winning nine races last season. That's just mind-blowing to think about. But I think he's going to run okay. He'll probably run top five, top ten. I just don't have a feeling that he's going to have race-winning speed, but... Ronnie Childers, go ahead and prove me wrong. Let's see. Denny Hamlin is locked in after last week since A.J. Allmendinger, a non-chartered car who is not playoff eligible, won the race. Tyler Reddick is still on the bubble. Larson is the overwhelming Larson is the overwhelming favorite for obvious reasons, but as I mentioned, you may see some other people running up front. So tune into all the action this weekend on the NBC Family of Networks. Firekeepers Casino 400, Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m. on NBCSN. Before we hit on our lug nuts of the week and close out the show, another sponsored read on the podcast. You guys, free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up your bedroom. That's even better. AdamandEve.com. We are a sex-positive podcast. We are a sex-positive world here. So you can go to AdamandEve.com. You can select almost any one item for up to half off, 50%, and they load on the free stuff. If you enter the offer code DAVY, D-A-V-Y, not D-A-V-E-Y, D-A-V-Y, at checkout, you can get 10 tantalizing free gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, a third item you'll both enjoy, plus six free spicy movies. Spice up the movies with some spicy movies from adamandeve.com. And oh, by the way, you get free shipping on all that jazz. That's offer code Davy D-A-V-Y. It's a meme at this point. We understand. At checkout, adamandeve.com. Spice up your life a little bit. Lug nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Josh Berry is going to run full time in the number eight car for Junior Motorsports next season. And I get a round of applause for that as I'm hitting myself in the chest. Tire Pros, Harrison's Workwear, they're already on board next year. Sam Mayer is also going to run full-time. You would assume Michael Annette with the Heralds. You would assume Michael Annette with the Pilot Flying J sponsorship will also be full-time. 
Justin Allgaier has a lot of partners with Brent Professional Agriculture being the biggest one. That leaves Noah Gregson in a bit of limbo, but Kelly Earnhardt Miller and Dale Jr. did say that the possibility of running five cars is in the cards, so stay tuned on that. Ryan Sieg Racing, they've parted ways with Shane Wilson, the crew chief, who was suspended for four races due to that axle coming out last week at Indianapolis. Cowboy Starlin's going to take the reins of the team in the 39 there. Another penalty post-Indy, Todd Gordon, Ryan Blaney's crew chief, he was fined $10,000 for one loose lug nut following their runner-up finish. Coleman Presley and TJ Majors, spotters for Team Penske, they're switching drivers from Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski and vice versa. So now TJ will spot for Brad, Coleman will spot for Joey, and Bob Pocker said that the assumption is that TJ will go with Brad to Roush Fenway Racing next year. So we'll see how that works out. DBC should be interesting this week. The Truck Series are going to have some blue spoilers and windshield banners. Xfinity is going to be red and Cup is going to be yellow. I like the differentiation with the playoff drivers in all three series, so I'm here for that. Unfortunately, since people aren't getting vaccinated, COVID-19 protocols have been updated for NASCAR. Media now has to wear masks outside. No fans are allowed on the grid. No indoor hospitality, suite visits, etc. So, yeah. I hate to say it, but we're going backwards, people, so please do your part. Get vaccinated. Chris Hacker, along with Armani Williams, is making his Truck Series debut for AEM Brothers Racing this weekend at Gateway. Carson Hosevar is returning to Nice Motorsports in 2022 for a full-time effort. Jake Griffin is going to be with the team this weekend for a one-off as well. Bubba Wallace is going to do a one-off for Hattori Racing Enterprises in the Xfinity Series this weekend. Austin Hill was scheduled to run that race, but... Since he has the playoff opener at Gateway, he decided to let somebody else have that seat in that race. Corey LaJoy has been named Speedway Children's Charities Ambassador, so congratulations to him for that. And Auto Owners Insurance has signed on with Martin Truex Jr. and Joe Gibbs Racing to remain on the 19 car for next season and beyond. That'll wrap things up for episode 121 of Victory Lane 2.0. Thank you guys so much for listening. And by the way, if you guys watched my TikTok or shared my TikTok this week, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It did waves on social media. It's it's the most viewed race recap that I have on my TikTok page. Definitely the most viewed one that I have on my Twitter page. Um, I don't know why this one did better. I guess because Indy was crazy and the content was good or maybe some certain people shared it. So whatever it, it was, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate you guys watching. And all the comments that you guys put on those mean a lot to me. Uh, they take a long time, as you can probably gather, but I appreciate that you guys are enjoying them as much as I am putting them together. So I'm glad that that is going well. But anyways, back to the task at hand. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, available on all podcast platforms. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can catch us on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your pods, we should be there for you. And if we're not, drop me a line and I'll try to fix that issue for you. Until next week when we have another guest on from the world of NASCAR, hint, hint, robot. Marinate on that one for a little bit. Enjoy Michigan this weekend. We'll catch you on the flip side. Peace and love, my dudes and dudettes. Get vaccinated, please.